And amen. Praise God. Well, we've been, one of the things I, I just love about the Bible and about God, God's practical. Religion's way up here somewhere. You know, it's theory and concept and ideas. It's the kind of thing, you know, you can come into church and you can bow to and do all kinds of things from. And then you go home and it has no difference in your life. But, but God is practical. He's also, he's also profound. So his profound truths will have practical applications in your life. James says, this is true religion. True religion isn't what you say out of your mouth, it's what you do. It's to visit widows and orphans. It's to take care of people. It's to act out what you believe in your heart. And so, true, true Christianity, because God is a practical God. God came down to meet us where we are. God sent His Son to take on flesh. One of the reasons is so that He could be touched with the feelings of our infirmity. So He could know what you're going through right now. Sammy could know what it's like to have a tooth pulled. <laughs> Didn't have one pulled, but he could know what that's like. He could know what it's like to get up in the morning and you don't feel like going to church. He could know what it's like to go pray because it's a decision to pray. Because it says he was touched the same way you and I were. We get little inklings every once in a while because we see him frustrated with his own people. He just got frustrated. He says, oh, how long do I have to put up with you people? <laughs> he gets frustrated at times. We could see him get, he wept at, at the tomb of Lazarus. God has emotion. Where do you think emotions come from? That's where our personality, that's where our passion, that's where our, our, our but we're not ruled by them, but we have them. And they're, they're, they're kind of the taste of life. You know, you can eat if you can't taste, but it's a whole lot better if you can taste what you're eating. And so, so God is a God, he's passionate. Well, the good thing is he's passionate to you, towards you. He loves you. He didn't just sit in heaven and admire you from on high. He wanted to come down and be identified with you. So God's practical and His Word is practical. So we've been learning this process of renewing the mind in practical things. We've learned what, what, the, why it's so important. We've learned how the mind works, that it works in, it works in, 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 in thoughts, terms of thoughts. The, 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 the currency of the mind is thoughts. It's like, but what those thoughts do is every thought you get is part of a picture. They're dots, like in a picture. Your TV screen is nothing but a series of dots. A newspaper picture is nothing but a series of dots. And they're arranged in a particular order so that they produce an image to you. Well, in the same way, your thoughts get collected together in your mind and begin to produce an image. And over time, that image, if it gets stronger and stronger, becomes a stronghold. And when it's a stronghold, it governs you. We... we act and react towards people based on how we see them. I do marriage counseling when I'm listening for when all the rigmarole and all the he said this and she says this and he never does this and she always says blah, 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 blah. What I'm listening to is how they see each other. Because over time you can change how you see each other depending on the dots that you put in. This is why communication is so important. Because if you don't truly communicate with somebody what happens is you lose touch with where their heart is. And when you lose touch with where their heart is, you start imagining where it is by interpreting things they do. And I found, at least in my experience, we never interpret in the positive, we always interpret in the negative. Well, they don't care about me anymore. And what I've learned is when I start feeling that way, it's almost always because I've stopped communicating with them. 
And so that'll apply in your marriage. So it comes from, and, and over time, those thoughts, when they're not based on reality, begin to form an image. And you can hear it as you listen to couples talk about each other. And it's not just in couples, but that's the, the clearest example that I can think of right now. Because they're talking to you about, you know, well, I can, I can justify why she's like, I can see her that way. Because this is all the things she says, and this is all the things she does. This is the thing she doesn't do, and that means she doesn't care about me anymore. But they've stopped looking in her heart. And they start interpreting what her heart's like by things she says. By, and those will all form dots. Well, the good news is, just as dots have formed the images that you have in your mind now, new dots can form new images. And the process of renewing your mind is literally doing that. It's not changing the image, it's changing the dots, changing the thoughts that you put in your mind, and to do it purposely to form a new image, a new image of what God is like, a new image of what of what you're like in God's eyes, who you are in Christ, and a new image of what other people are like in God's eyes. And the Word of God tells us how He sees us, and we need to take the Word of God and begin to put those thoughts in. So we've been looking at some techniques that, of how to do that. And the first one we looked at was meditating, and I gave you some practical steps about how to meditate, and I've gotten some good feedback from people that they see it really does work, and it does work. It's amazing the Word of God does work. It's amazing how often I get... Sh- you know, that really works. It does. God's word worked. We shouldn't be shocked. But even Peter was shocked when Jesus cursed the fig tree and it withered and died. And now what we've been looking at is, is confession. And there's, there's basically three types of confession. Really just two, because two are very similar to each other. One is the confession of our sins. That's the one we're the most familiar with. The other is a confession where you're declaring out of your mouth something you already believe in your heart. You're releasing your faith by your words. God operates that way. He creates by saying, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus controls storms by speaking to them, speaking to the mountain. And what you're doing then is you're releasing what you already believe in your heart. You're releasing it with your mouth. It really is the other side of confession of your sin, because really what it is, is it's it's accepting ownership of something. When you confess your sin, you're accepting ownership. I did it. But that's also true in the positive when you find God, what God's Word says, some promise about you, that the Word of God... So let's just take an example of that just quickly. I don't want to dwell on this. But let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Here's a good one. Ephesians 1. If, if you want something to confess, I consider this the cheesecake of the Word of God. You ever have some... I mean, there's some cheesecake that's just gooey, but there's rich... I mean, it's just... Every bite is just... I mean, I don't want to lose you there. I'm going to lose some of you. I know I'm going to lose. I'm, if not you, I'm going to lose me. And, and, and I mean, this is just, let's just start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Now look at this. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. You confess verse 4. If you confess that three times a day, you watch what a difference that will make. Now, one type of confession is you're taking something you believe in your heart and you're releasing it with your words. 
So in order for that confession to work, you've got to already believe it in your heart. We went back and looked in Romans 12, 10. That's how you got saved. Because you believe in your heart that God, if you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with a mouth confession is made unto righteousness, with a heart, whatever it says. Basically, you've got to do both of them. <laughs> and so that's how you got saved. You believed the word of God, and then you made a confession of faith of what you believed. But if you don't already believe it in your heart, you can confess it till the cows come home, and it ain't going to happen. And there are a lot of people out there, get a hold of this message of confession, and they say, but pastor, it doesn't work. Well, it just did work. Because you just confessed it doesn't work. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But there's another type of confession, because that's not a tool for renewing your mind. The other type of confession that we began to talk about last time is when you take scripture that you don't believe or you're not fully convinced of, and you start declaring that with your mouth. Well, pastor, what's the difference? The difference is it has a different purpose. The other type of confession I just mentioned is when you're releasing your faith, you're releasing something you believe, you're activating it with your words. The purpose of this type of confession is to change what you believe. And with the background we have now, you can understand that process. Because what you're doing is you're taking a dot from the Word of God, a thought, one of God's thoughts, and you're intentionally sowing it into your heart. Matthew 13 and, of course, Mark 4 are the parable of the sower, and the sow, what the seed is the Word of God. And that seed, the difference in what that seed could produce was the condition of the heart. But it shows this principle that is taking the Word of God and sowing it in your heart. Well, you don't have a zipper on the front that you can unzip and just deposit it in. You can't go to the church infirmary over here and we stick in a needle in your arm and we ingest the Word of God into you so that it flows. It's not this heart that pumps and moves your blood around. It's the seed of who you are. It's down in your spirit. It's down in the depths of who you are. And that, the only way to get in there is through this thing. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by the word of God. So faith, believing what God says, comes by hearing it. And the most powerful source from which you can hear the word of God is only a few inches from your ears. It's when you hear your own voice, say it. That it has more power than any other source. Say so you have an inner ear. And I don't mean the, you know, the, the parts that control your balance. I don't mean the physical inner ear. You have an inner ear to your soul a part of you that's listening to what's going on around you. And so what we're talking about is purposefully, intentionally taking advantage of that and putting in you what's going to help change you instead of letting the devil put things in you and other wonderful non-believing Christians put things in you. We're to take charge of what comes in us. Just as we take charge of what goes in our mouth for food, it's like somebody saying, 
I have no idea how I put on all this weight. I do. <laughs> the body is a simple calculator. It tallies up at the end of the day what went in calorie-wise and what was used. And what you took in that was more than you used, it stores someplace. And I know there are factors, you know, we can, you know, there are other factors that, that contribute to that. But the basic principle is, <laughs> so when we say, I have no idea how that happened, we're deceived. Yeah. <laughs> we better move along. That was not very popular. <laughs> back, back into Ephesians 1. All right. Now. So what, what we're talking about is taking the Word of God and intentionally putting it in your heart by saying it. Now here's what some of the things that that means. Because with the other, that's why it's important to understand there's two different types of confession. With the other type of confession where you're releasing your faith, it only works if you already believe it in your heart. This type of confession you're making because you don't already believe it in your heart. So when you start saying things that are contrary to what your upbringing is, to what your mind's thought before, your mind's going to balk at it. It's going to freak out and say, oh, that can't be possibly true. It's going to start bringing, you know, you start confessing, you know, the Word of God says that it's God's will to heal me. If you've not been, your mind's not been renewed to that, your mind will start thinking of all kinds of people you know that died believing that, which may not necessarily were believing it when they died, but it looks like they were. You'll have all kinds of reasons come to you why that's not true. You'll think of scriptures which are out of context, that that's not true. Your mind will, because your mind is going to fight it. But you're changing your mind. So you have to keep working at it because you're realigning the way your mind thinks. And that's what, but the Word of God is anointed to do that. So you can take, so when I'm telling you that, because when you start doing it, your mind's going to say, well, that's not true. You don't even believe that. You're lying to yourself. No, you're not, but you're you're trying to change what you believe. So you keep at it no matter whether you feel like you're getting it or not. Just like when the doctor says, take this antibiotic one tablet in the morning and one tablet at night until they're all gone. And he'll tell you, look, the symptoms may go away in a day or two, but you take the rest of the bottle. I, I, I tested one once. I said, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He only has seven years of medical school, and I have, let's see, actually, I never went to medical school, but I seem to know better. So I started feeling better and took, stopped taking it, and guess what? It came back. Because I discovered he knew what he was talking about. So what you learn to do is you just take it. You don't know how it's working. You just take it. You don't even think about what it's working. He said, take it. It says on the bottle, take it. Faith comes by hearing. So I take it. I know not how it works, but it works. This same works the same way. You don't need to understand how it works. You don't even need to believe that it works. Just do it. And it works. Okay. Because what you're doing now is you're purposefully taking thoughts... God's thoughts about whatever the situation is and you're putting them down in your heart. So here's a good one about just your self-image. 
Verse 4, Just as He chose me in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. That will change your day right there. So, and what you, you, know, you read it and your mind kind of balks because it doesn't really, how could I be this? How could I be? You know, I know it says it there. See, the problem is we can believe certain things at different levels. So it's like intellectually we say, well, it's God's word, it must be true. But you know when it changes you is when it drops that 18 inches from up here, down and here. That's why Jesus talks about what you believe in your heart, not your head. You know you can believe something different in your head than you believe in your heart? And so you've got to keep putting it in until it drops that 18 inches down in your heart and you'll know when it hits there. You'll know when it goes off because it becomes real to you and it begins to have an effect on you. Now, there's some, just some principles to help you with this. It helps if you're conscious of what you're doing while you're doing this. It helps if you can go back and remember you're, you're, you're putting dots in there. You're, you're putting thoughts into... You're trying to create a new picture because then your mind will start cooperating with the process. It'll work anyway, but it'll speed the process up. Your mind doesn't have to agree or understand exactly what you're, say, what you're saying. Since you're changing your mind, it probably won't agree at first. It doesn't take faith to do this, except faith that this will work. Feelings have nothing to do with this. They have absolutely nothing to do with it. You may feel excited, you may not feel excited. You just keep doing it. It is important what your mind does in the process. Try to not let it wander on other things. It may try to do that because your mind is, you know, your mind is like a like a three-year-old that you're trying to you're trying to get to to stand still in the mall. You know, while you're occupied doing something, and you you know they, they can sense. Mommy's busy right now. She can't give me her undivided attention. Here's my chance. You know, your mind's like that. It'll it'll test you. See, remember, I told you early on, you are not your mind. That's going to be. It's a revelation for some of you. You are not your mind. Therefore, you can control your mind. In fact, you need to control your mind. And so. So it's important what you allow your mind to do. Don't let it wander around. The more your mind focuses on what you're saying, the more, the more powerfully that word is sown into your heart. Think about what you're doing while you're doing it. Think that you're intentionally changing the way you see yourself. And think about what you're saying. Now let me give you a couple examples of how God did this in the Bible. We had Abraham. We'll talk about him first. God, we've talked about him in other contexts. God calls him because God wants to form from him a new nation of people that are going to be his covenant people. Unlike everybody, anybody, other people on the face of the earth, he's called these people. He starts with one man. And he picks a man that can't do anything in terms of producing a generation because he's too old, his wife's too old, and she's barren. Three strikes against them. That's who God chooses to start with, because they can't do anything to help God out. 
And often God will choose, in fact it says in 1 Corinthians, he'll choose the weak things of the world to confine, to confound the strong. He'll, he'll choose the, the, the things that are not so wise to confound the wise and the things that are not to, con, to, to, to show the wise so that God gets all the glory. So that God gets all the glory. And sometimes when we think we're wise, when we think we're strong, when we think we can do things, God has to let us find out just how strong, just how wise, and just how determined we are. And so he'll just fold his arms and say, okay, hot shot, let's see what you can do. It's your turn. You go ahead. And when we run out, skin our knees, bump our nose, and cry out for help, he's a good father. He's right there to pick us up, dust us off, and say, okay, have you learned it yet? You need me. Okay. So, God calls Abram. His name is Abram. And Abram means exalted father. And God calls him, enters into a covenant with him, and Abram catches on to this and says, well, what do I get out of this covenant? It's in Genesis 15. And God says, he says, since I don't have an heir, I don't have a son. And God says, come on out here. And we've talked about this before. He has him look at the stars and says, it says as far as I'm concerned, you're going to be a father of many nations. So Abraham's thinking of one child, and God's thinking of many nations that are going to come from his body and his wife's body. And God has to expand his vision. And so part of this process is, at the end, is God changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Now every time Abraham says his name, or anyone says his name to Abraham, he's confessing that Abraham is a father of many nations. Now, when we had our children, you know, it was popular. I'm sure it still is today. You know, you go to the whatever store they have baby things in, and they have little books where you get to pick out, you know, how do you choose your baby's name? And, you know, and it tells you, you know, the, the name John means, and there's 14 different meanings. And if you get another book, it'll give you other meanings. You know, I think there's somebody that just sits up there and just picks these things out of nowhere. Because <laughs> they don't agree with each other in many cases. But in biblical times, the name was very significant because it described either something that your parents had gone through. If you go through and study the names that were given to, Jacob, to, uh, to, uh, to, to Jacob's children, you will find they all had a significance. Well, Jacob's name has a significance. Jacob was called by God. He was one of two twins. His older brother's name was Esau. His name means ruddy or, or rough or, or red, you know, red-skinned, rough, hairy guy. He's, you know, he was the, was the macho guy of the family. And his brother, who was coming out of the womb second, grabbed the hold of his brother's heel, pulled him back, and came out first. You say, what was that all about? Because the, 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 the custom of that day was that the firstborn male had the primary rights to the inheritance, and to be the head of the family. In English law, it became the law of autoprimogeniture, which means whoever first, born first, had the birthright. They had a higher percentage, and it not was just, not just how much they inherited, it was they became the head, the patriarch of the family. Now, the interesting thing about, about this son is that God had already spoken to his mother and said, there are two nations in your womb. And the one that's going to come out second 
is going to rule over the one that came out of first. So God had already expressed his destiny for this young boy. But there's a real side lesson in this. So the boy, the, 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 this, this, this ambition that was in this infant before he's even breathed his first breath was to grab all of his brothers and say, no, no, you're not coming out first. I'm, he pulled him back and he came out first. And so they gave him the blessed name of Jacob, which means trickster or supplanter, which means one who butts in line. That's a modern translation of it. Because that's what he did. And of course, he starts living that out because as they get older and his father's about to hand the blessing to his older brother Esau, mom comes to whom God had spoken the vision. I don't know about you, but this gives me hope because they're called people of faith. (laughs) And she cooks up a scheme with her son to trick her husband into blessing the wrong child, even though it was God's will that he be blessed. But see, they couldn't let God do it his way. Oh, we could park on that. But I don't want to be too uncomfortable because I'd have to listen to it too. It's, you know, we, we want to help God out. So we see a way. We know what God's will is. We know what He wants. But we figure our way to help Him get there just in case His way doesn't work. Or, or takes longer than we want it to take. And, and, and if you look at the stories in the Bible, they always made a mess that God had to clean up. And it, it slowed the process down. And so he fools his father into thinking he's really Esau. And then when the truth comes out, he's got to run. His mother has to sneak him out of town at night. And she sends him back to her uncle Laban, who's just as crafty and tricky. See, this was in the family. I know some of you have things that have run in the family. And I've got some things that gallop in our family. And, 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 and things, those things happened back then. So she takes him back to her uncle Laban, and Laban tricks him a number of times. So instead of serving him seven years for the woman he wants to marry, he ends up serving him 21 years. When if he'd just done things God's way, he never had to leave home. So he's on his way back because he can't stay with his uncle anymore because now he tricked his uncle. There's a principle in the Bible called sowing and reaping. It doesn't just apply to money. It it applies to how we treat people. It applies with things we say. It's a principle of the kingdom of heaven. And so he had sown deceit And so he reaped a harvest of deceit. Laban sowed deceit, and he was deceived. But God, the wonderful thing, God wasn't finished with him. God will watch you walk the path out until you finally come to your senses and say, this is just not working. What do I need to do? The wonderful thing about the story is On the way back, 
Jacob realizes he's got to choose between staying with his uncle Laban or going back home. And, and it must have been bad enough to stay with Laban because he decided to go back home and face his brother Esau, who couldn't have been too happy with him. And he said 21 years to stew on it. And so he's on his way back. So what he does is he sends, he sends an offering ahead. Then he sends his possessions ahead. Then he sends his family ahead just to see how they're all going to be received. So basically, if, if his brother wipes them all out, he's going to head the other way. This is a man whose destiny is to be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of whom is going to be the line through which the Messiah comes. I love the Bible. It just, it lets, it just lets it all hang out. They're real people. And God doesn't cover it over. He doesn't hide it here. He shows them as real people with their failures and weaknesses. And he shows his grace working among them. So why do we think we can't be open and honest with him? He's trying to tell us something. So he sends them all ahead and... and, and, and <laughs> When are, when are we ever going to get that, 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 that you just you can't outrun God, you can't outthink God, you just you just give up. He's going to get you where He wants to get you, so He can do with you what He wants to do with you. I don't mean punish you, get through to you. It, it, remember Jeremiah twenty nine. His plans towards us are not to punish us, not to get us, not to corner us, but they're for good, not for evil. For hope and for an expected end. But that expected end is God's end, not ours. So now he's, he's got everybody ahead of him. He's feeling safe. He's all alone, which is where God wanted him. And now an angel of the Lord appears to him and begins to wrestle with him. And they wrestle all night. And when dawn comes, the angel's trying to get away and said, Let me go, let me go, let me go. And the words out of Jacob's mouth is, I will not let you go until you blessed me. Those are the words of faith. Something went off in him that night. Through all of his experiences, through the situation of being alone in this... Sometimes God has to get us alone. Where it's just God and us. And he brings the real issues out. The real stuff that we don't want other people to know, that we don't even want to look at ourselves. He wants to get us alone, wrestle with us. It says his, his hip joint was dislocated. That can't have been fun. But he didn't quit. See, he was a quitter before. He was a trickster before. See, when you have to deceive and trick people into getting it, it's because you don't have any confidence they'll give it to you because you asked. It's called manipulation. When people manipulate, it's because they're insecure. Now, they're just some con artists. They just want to cheat you. But by and large, most of the people we know, most of our family members, which may even include us, that manipulate one another, is not because we're con artists. We just don't have any confidence that somebody's going to do something for us because they like us, so we have to make them do it for us with Guilt, fear, intimidation. All of these are ways of 
of manipulating. The problem is we try to manipulate God. Listen to your prayers sometime. Just kind of step away from yourself and listen to your prayers and ask you what you're really doing with Him. Are, are we trying to con Him into doing something? Oh God, my Aunt Susie would make a great Christian. Would you please save her? Well, everybody make a great Christian once they're saved. <laughs> They'd make a wonderful addition to your kingdom. Nobody makes a good addition to his kingdom when he find, where he finds us. It's only when he puts his spirit in us and, and matures us. But those are natural thinking. But we, you know, we'll, we con, try to con God, manipulate him, tell him why he ought to do things. And we do it with each other. We do it with ourselves. We try to manipulate ourselves. But God's a God of truth, which means he does things straight forward. James says, you have not because you ask not. And the things you ask for, you don't get because you ask with the wrong motives. You're not straightforward and direct. So what goes off in Jacob, something snaps in him other than his hip. Maybe that's what it was. And now his, he's just straightforward with God. He says, I am not letting go of you until you bless me. And now the angel stops because there's a change in him. And he says, he says, what's your name? Now remember, I've told you, God never asks a question because he's trying to get information. It's not like God didn't know his name. What you, he wants him to make a confession of who he's been. So he has to say, my name's Jacob. Now, now you understand what he's saying. My name's con artist. My name's deceiver. I'm a deceiver. I'm a schemer. I'm a supplanter. That's what I've been. And he says, no longer will your name be called Jacob. But I'm giving a new, new, you a new name. Your name is Israel which means Prince God. Because his character had changed, he now had to change his image of himself. So God gave him a new name so that every time not only he spoke his name, could he be renewing his mind to who he was. But if you stop and think about it, we still talk about him today. Because Israel is not the name of a nation. It's the name of a man and everyone that has come forth from him. So when we say the nation of Israel, we're not talking about it. I know politically and news-wise that's what we're doing. But in God's eyes, we're not talking about a geographic location we're talking about a collection of people that are the issue of a man that wrestled with him one night and who God changed his image and changed his name to line up with his image. Your name means something to God. 
When your name is spoken, God knows who you are. His ears prick up. You may say, well, who am I among me? But he's God. He's God. He sees everyone at all times, and he sees each one of us individually and particularly. Says he knows every thought. Says he knows, and I'm closing my eyes, not looking at anybody. He knows the number of the hairs on your head. <laughs> That's a little easier task for me than it used to be. Says they're numbered. I don't believe that just means he knows the total count. I believe that means he knows which follicle is 372. He watched over your cells dividing. Psalm 139 says that. He watched over every cell being formed in your womb. Watched over that process. Watched over it. Caring about it. Anticipating the moment you would come forth. If you think your parents anticipated your birth, it's nothing like your Heavenly Father. And you may have had parents that didn't anticipate your birth. You may have parents you don't even know who they are. But your Heavenly Father anticipated your birth. Because we just read, He predestined you before the foundation. The word predestined, don't get it just means He planned for you. Not only He planned for you, He planned when you. He planned for you now. Say, what's that mean? Well, if this really is the, 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 the brink of the end of the age, that means he saved his best for last. And if he chose you to be among the last, that means he's evaluated you as the best. So I don't feel that. You may not feel that way about yourself. We're talking about how God sees you. We're talking about how God sees you. Remember, that's what renewing your mind to. It's learning how to not think about me my way, but how God sees me. And God chose you. You may look at yourself. I was one of those kids. You know, it was a little pudgy when I was growing up, you know. And, and I was not. I, I loved athletics, but I wasn't that gifted at it. I was a little slow. I don't mean mentally slow, but physically slow. I just, you know, I, I, I in in in, in uh, the school I graduated from high school in, you, it was a private school. You had to compete because they didn't have gym. You had to compete in a sport. And my fall sport was either football or cross country. Well, I was not about to line up against those guys in my class that were much bigger than I was. So I figured if you don't have to wear... When you got to put shoulder pads on and helmets, that's because they're going to do things to you that might hurt. <laughs> See, I was a little sharper than the guys that put it on. I'd figure that out. They'd come limping off the field, and I'd just laugh at them. i said, what do you expect? When they got to put you in armor, <laughs> they're going to try to do things to you that aren't fun. So when I went out for cross-country, all you need is sneakers and a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. Figured, hey, what can that be? Then I found out how long cross-country was. <laughs> The other shocking revelation is I thought track was you ran around this big oval. So 
so if you got worn out before the end of the race, you could just come over and sit down on the bench. It never dawned on me what cross-country means. It wasn't round the oval. It was cross-country. And where we were, it had hills. I wasn't used to running. Uh, first time I got out there, I got out on this course, I would be half a mile out there. And I'm... <laughs> and I was, I got somewhere and found out, how long is this thing? It was like two and a half to three mi- miles. So I found out what my purpose on that team was. See, everybody has a role on a team like that. My role was to make sure nobody else came in last. And I had a perfect record at that. <laughs> Performed my role, and, and, and the guy that was second to last loved me. <laughs> How did we get off on that? Where were we? <laughs> what was it? Best for last? Oh, yeah, thank you. Well, it's, that's good anyway, so... <laughs> Okay, I didn't make me the best, but I was last, praise God. All right, okay, that's Jacob. So God changed his name in part so that by declaring his name, he'd be making a confession and begin to change his image. All right, I want to introduce one other, one other technique here. Monitoring your thoughts. We started in the beginning by talking about learning to, to control your thoughts, but before you can control them, you've got to know you have them. Most people, are, their mind is running, and they don't even know it's running. They don't even conscious of their thoughts. All they know is they begin to experience things, and that's the first they know of anything, is I'm angry, and I don't even know why. But understand this, your emotions follow your thoughts. Your emotions follow your thoughts. So in order to control your thoughts, in order to purposely put new thoughts in, you have to learn to become aware of your thoughts. Not only that, but it becomes a defense against thoughts that are... Because while you're doing this renewing the mind, the devil's not saying, hey, they heard about renewing the mind. I'm done with them. I better go into somebody else. Oh, no, no, no. He's still going to try to sow his seeds. The other day my wife and I were talking about some situation that, that we were both aware of and, and she was talking to me about, you know, I could hear in her words the thoughts she'd been thinking. And I said, well, let's slow down a second because often it's easier to do that with somebody else than yourself. And I said, slow down. Let's th- think about what you just said because what you just said tells me that you're already having these thoughts that had to go on before, and I can tell you that what's happening is the enemy is trying to begin to sow in you the seeds for a new image. And it was fear. And with mothers, anything that has to do with your children, you're immediately open to 
taking those thoughts, especially if they're not with you. Well, this might happen, and they begin to, begins to put this thought together with this. Remember about the, connect the dots to form a picture? Begin to put this thought together with this. See, when you begin to come conscious of your thoughts, you realize, okay, I got this thought, and I had this thought yesterday. Whoa, I can see how they could be tied together. I better be careful, because when I get this thought, ah, there's a scheme working here. So now I need to realize I don't want to take the next thought. So the more you become used to this, the more you can recognize those thoughts and where they're coming from. We talked about that before, but that doesn't work unless you train yourself to recognize the thoughts. So, first of all, it starts to be do, do that. You've got to become aware of the strongholds. Realize Become aware of those. And, and this is where our emotions come into play. Because, you know, when we learn about faith, we think emotions just go away. You know, well, if we have faith, then we don't have emotions. But Jesus had emotions. Emotions are part of life. They're part of being real. We're not controlled by them, but we have them. And God will use your emotions to try to show you something about yourself. Because if you're feeling fear... That did just blow in from somewhere. There's a thought pattern going on that somehow has at the root of it some form of unbelief. And that fear, if you'll learn to trace it back, you can identify where the unbelief is. Jealousy or envy. I know it's doctrines of demons, but that usually has at its root some kind of insecurity. Because if you try to tell me I have a charcoal gray suit on, that's not going to make me feel insecure. I'm not going to feel envious. And if you say, you know, I've got, you know, Lisa can say, I've got this beautiful pink dress. That's not going to, pink dress isn't going to make me feel envious. That's not a threat to me. She can have the most beautiful pink dress in the world. That's no competition to me. But get around other pastors and they say, I got 10,000 in my church. Well, pastors can get envious. That means, oh, they're more successful than I am. God's moving more there than I am and we have to learn if I'm going to go among other pastors I've already prepared myself I'm not going to let those kind of thoughts in. In fact, I've now learned to not let those kind of thoughts in whether I'm around other pastors or not because this is not my church anyway. And the success of a church is not on how many people are there. It's in hearing well done, good and faithful servant. So I, listen to me, this is a good example of this. I have learned and I still have to practice this sometimes. I've learned to change my goal and purpose from trying to build a big church to my goal and purpose is to be faithful to what God's given me to do. So that allows me to be among pastors with huge churches. Somebody came along, you know, do you know such and such churches opened another church over there and opened another church? I said, God bless them. I'm not competing with them. This is not, we're on the same relay team. So that doesn't threaten me because my responsibility is to stand before God with what He's given me. But I had to work at that. I had to work at that. And what would happen is I would, I would get in a situation and begin to feel, I could feel envy, I feel jealousy rising up in me. And when I sensed the emotion, I stopped. 
And it's, oh, that means you've allowed some thoughts in that don't line up with this. Tomorrow we're going to pray and find out what those thoughts are. Because you're going to get rid of those, you're going to replace those thoughts with what this says. And I would do that. There might be times I'd pace up and down here and have to talk to myself. Sow that word in here until I establish that. And I am convinced that God would not have put me in this spot if I had not done that. Because I was so insecure that if one person left, I might have fallen apart. Now, that may be an overstatement, but I would be very much moved by what people did because I needed their approval because I was insecure in myself. There are some of you out there that are in the same situation. It may not be ministry. It may be your job. It may be family situations. It may be cars, people drive, whatever it may be. But what I've had to learn, I've told you, I didn't get this out of a book. I got this out of this book and out of time, Facebook time. Learning to do what I'm teaching you to do. That's why I know it works. Because there's things now that would have upset me, thrown me off, thrown me into a tailspin that don't even, I don't even notice them. Why? Because I keep my focus on, I keep my image in there, I keep renewing those dots in my mind of what my responsibility is. The end of this is I'm going to stand before God. The end of this is I'm going to stand before God, present to Him what I did that I was supposed to do, and trust that I'm going to hear those words. That's all my ambition is. Not to have a well-known ministry. I don't. Whatever God wants, it's not my purpose. It's work, but it works. All right, praise God. So learning to monitor your thoughts, I want to give you a couple of little principles here and then we're, we're going to bring this down to an end. Learning to catch those thoughts at the door. Remember the guy in the brown uniform ringing your doorbell? Learn to catch those thoughts. But, but you'll, you, you, until you've trained yourself in that, most likely the first inkling you'll have is an emotion. You'll begin to feel yourself getting uptight. I remember years ago, before I was in this position, before I was actually on staff here and I was still practicing law, my office was an hour away. And I was noticing over a period of time. See, there's these sudden, you know, bursts of emotion. You can recognize those. But some of them, they're more subtle. And I was noticing that I was just more and more uh, snappy and not, not usually a very snappy person in the sense of, of you know, snippy, touchy. And I noticed that, 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 that I was just, uh, there was a low-grade anxiety. And Okay, why? So I began, this is what I went, I began to trace my thought. What have you been thinking about? I don't mean when I'm at work, but you know, I had an hour drive each way. And I began to notice some thoughts because that, that I was seeing cars go by me and I would, could remember new cars going by. And the car I was driving was old and it was great because it was a 50, 60 mile an hour trip each day. So I didn't want a brand new car. But the awareness was hitting me, this thing's going to wear out and I'm going to have to, I hate buying cars. I don't like, any of you a car dealer, forgive me, but I don't like negotiating for cars because I don't know what the rules are. 
and, and, and I just don't like that process. And, I, and what I realized was, as I traced the thoughts back, and they were little thoughts. You'd see a car go by and say, oh, that guy has a new car. I wasn't envious. Then I realized, I'd look at this car, and I'd look at the new car, and subtly those thoughts were building up, you're going to need to replace this soon. Where's the money going to come from? And over a period... See, none of those was a blinding thought saying, ah, what are you going to do? They were just little things that were kind of ruminating around in me, but those are the ones that are easy to miss. And but where how I became aware of it is I became conscious that I was uneasy. Not in my spirit, just I was tense. I, and there was, that means there was, I was, there was a low-grade anxiety, but that was not just there for no reason at all. That was a result of things I'd been thinking. So I traced... It back, what have you been thinking about lately when your mind just has nothing else to think about? Which leads me into another principle. Don't let that happen. Don't let your mind freewheel. You know what I mean by that? Just let it wander. Because it will usually wander to negative things. Remember, every thought is a dot. Every thought is part of an image, either good or bad. So when your mind starts wandering, that's a good opportunity to use some of these techniques of meditating, confessing the word. I told you a few weeks ago, one of the great techniques that I've used is to take a, an index card, three by five card, and take a scripture that you like Roman, like Ephesians 1, 4, and write that on there. And every time you think of that card, pull it out. Now, if you're driving, you can't pull it out and read it, but you can pull it out and touch it. It will remind you of that scripture. So while you're driving, why do something with your mind consciously to put these dots in? Okay. So learn to ask yourself questions. What am I thinking about? Do spot checks. What am I thinking about? What am I feeling right now? Have somebody else, that, like a spouse or somebody you trust, say, begin to reflect back to you. You know, you look awful tense. Why? Begin to ask yourself that question. Don't let your mind free float. Good idea is to, keep, is to write a journal. Just write your thoughts down. Don't worry about it. In fact, when he had school of ministry, I had them. That was one of their assignments. They can't, couldn't show it to anybody, so you could put anything you wanted in there. But by writing your thoughts down, what you're doing is you're becoming more conscious of them. Okay. And the last thing we're going to cover, and then we're going to end quickly here, is, and we've just come through that, one of the things that will help you with renewing your mind is fasting. And as we've learned before, there are many different types of fasting. The, 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 the most obvious kind is what the word actually means, turn your plate over. It means you stop eating. And you, what, what that does is it slows your body down. Now, there, you know, we did a three-day fast here, but you can do, you can fast one meal a day for a while. You can fast just once one day for a week. You can do anything you want. But the idea is, is, it, is it slows your body down. It gains control. Because if you can gain control of your body, it's easier to gain control of your mind. See, when one part of you is out of control, it's hard to get the rest of you under control. So fasting, just periodic fast, doesn't have to be a three-day fast or a 21-day fast. Or there's some fasts where you fast longer, but you eat only certain types of food, like chocolate and ice cream. No, 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 no. no. I, you know, I never found that type of fast. Oh, that's right. You don't eat those kinds of things. That's right. I had it backwards. Some, there's fast where you just eat vegetables, a Daniel fast. There are different types of fast, but something like that where you begin to get control and just get your body quiet. Fasting doesn't earn anything, but what fasting does is put you in a better position to, let, to put your spirit in ascendancy and get control of your mind.